Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Well, hello, church. It is so good to see you, and thank you for all of you who've already checked in online and let us know you're there. We, we love that. We love seeing your names and your locations. Um, Larry and Karen Freeman, as they've said the last couple of weeks, are from Spokane, Washington, but the operative word there is from. They're actually on the road right now, moving to Tennessee. They want to make their final home here where they can help us at the soundstage. And we love that. So very shortly, you'll start seeing Larry and Karen more live. You've seen them uh, on, on tape several times, but it's, it's going to be lovely to have them here. And by the way, we, we do encourage you to flee all other parts of the country and move right here. Um, Ignore, I mean, what's, what's an 8% interest rate? What, let's not worry about these things. Uh, just, just come here. I, it was very touching. We've known the Freemans since 2014, I think, to, something like that. And they were in our congregation when they lived in Colorado and we were out there. So anyway, thank you for being here. We've emphasized a very hard uh, concept for Americans, I think in particular, or Westerners to get And that is the kingship of Christ, a king. And after all of these years, it's still hard for those without a king to accept a king. But nowhere does he sound more like a king in this manifesto, this Sermon on the Mount, than he does in this area, in this particular chapter, chapter 7. As he brings it, because again, what we did not see, it was not on the stage you don't, didn't see it written down, is that lessons back then were not stood up and presented in a stand and deliver style that we expect of our ministers and some of our teachers. But rather, there were conversations going on among the people. There were noises, there were people moving about, and there had been challenges thrown. And you can read them. As you read the changes in subject and coming back to subject, you can see where those were. But there were fewer of them here in chapter 7. Because some people will have left. Some people will have been convinced. Some people will have decided, let's just listen and see for ourselves. And so as they are settling into this, he speaks as a king. In chapter 7, of uh, verse 7 through 12, kings can be benevolent. They can be generous. They can be supportive. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and a door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. We're going to talk about that one. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, by the way, that would have been quoting their words back to them. Jesus doesn't tend to call us evil. But people back then were different than people are today. They were really quick to call other people evil. There is sarcasm there. Humanity is very quick to call people evil. So he's saying, all right, if you are evil, 
you know how to give gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Kings, they can be benevolent. They can bestow the wealth. And in the, in the book of Esther, to me, it is just comical. It just cracks me up, parts of the book. Because no matter what happens, the king is so smitten with Esther and so also in, um, in his friendship to others, he'll constantly say, I'll give you half the kingdom. If you count up all the halves, by the end of the book, they're just getting a splinter. But that was what he was just, I'll give you half the kingdom. Well, he can do that. He's the king. But also kings can limit their subjects' participation in the kingdom. Verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Kings can also issue warnings about enemies. And calls for vigilance. And that's the next 15 through 23. Watch out for false prophets. They'll come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from the bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruits cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruit you'll recognize them. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, ye evildoers. He uses the word evil again. He's tying a theme together there. But again, a king can promise security and safety. But a king can also say there is destruction waiting That's verses 24 through 27, which is where the kids got that long song, you know, wise man builds his house upon the rock. And a foolish man builds his house upon the sand. So, we we see this now. We have read the Sermon on the Mount, or as I like to call it, the Kingdom Manifesto. What do we do with it now? How How do we follow our Lord? Well, following our Lord, obeying our King is a process, not an event, but it's also an event, and then a process. It's always, it always tickles me, but I know what people mean. They'll say, when were you saved? Well, because I come from a particular tribe, uh, back during my growing up years and much of my adulthood, I will tell them when I was baptized. But I wasn't just baptized one day, there was a process that led me to that point. And I didn't stop obeying God then. In fact, in many ways, I was just getting started, which I can also say now, even at 66, almost 67, I know that I am still being saved. There are parts of me that are being redeemed. However, throughout this entire process, I believe with all of my heart that if I died, I would be with Jesus. And so I don't want to make any of you think, ooh, have we yet attained? 
Paul talks about, I have not yet attained, I press on. But at the very same time, he told them, I know it's better for me to actually die than I would be with Jesus. So when are you saved? Yes. It is an event. And it is a process. It, it, any metaphor we try to use for this, by the way, falls flat. We can try marriage. When were you married? When people ask me when we were married, I know what they mean. They mean, what was the date of the ceremony? The commencement of this. And so I'll tell them when I was. But that phrase can also mean, when were you married? Talking to somebody who isn't married now. And so I'll, I'll bring up, well, we started on this date. And we're continuing to learn how to do this now. And by the way, it's, it's a joy, not a, not a trial. But like many things in life, it's not an event. When did you grow old? <laughs> I don't know. I looked in the mirror one day and saw my dad looking back. That's when I grew old. I, uh, that's, that, that's when it hit me. You put your, your, your coat on and your dad's hands come out. Has that ever hit you? And you're going, well, what happened there? Obviously, you know, I've been bitten by a radioactive spider. I'm just in mid-transition here. But are you, when are you saved? And following our Lord is the same way. Are we saved when we acknowledge him our king, as our king? And are, we pledge to him our allegiance in all things, faith. Or when we repent and start moving all those things in our lives that mark us as citizens of the world. We call that repentance. Are we saved at baptism? That's the taking of an oath, if you didn't know that. Baptism is the taking of an oath. Are we saved by participation in kingdom life? To be Christian living. I could keep going. But the answer to all of these is yes, but. We are saved, but. We are not saved because we did things. We are saved because we are facing the right direction. We are looking to the right king for our leadership and our meaning. Back to that very enigmatic passage. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And just in case you thought this was some sort of um, Middle Eastern philosophy, not to be taken too literally, he says, for everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who seeks, finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Well, let's just go ahead and say it then. Have you ever asked for something and not gotten it? Have you ever sought something in your life, not found it? Have you ever had a closed door hit you and, and then opened up and shows no signs of ever opening up? I think most of us have. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, to really get this started, I have to talk about a poorly laid out staircase. When we first came to America in the late 80s, uh, we worked with a church that the parking lot was a wee bit higher than the building, you know, just because it's in a hilly place. And there, there were steps up to the parking lot. Now, whoever laid out the, the steps had not met humans. And so the steps were very, very deep, but very short. But to walk up them, taking one at a time, made you look like you were a little ballet dancer, you know, doing the death of the swan slowly. And it didn't feel very manly. To take two at a time, however, because of their depth, 
required quite the slinging of leg out there and over. There were no compromises. One day, I ascended the staircase to get to my car, and at the very top of the, of the staircase, looking at me with his arms crossed and a great look of disdain, was a young teenager who was a big guy who had made it plain early on that he wasn't quite happy that they had imported immigrants to preach, I guess. And, that, and by that time, by the way, I'm no, no a big man now, but back then I was skinnier. We were coming out of Scotland. I'd had a long period of depression. I, I, could, uh, I could fall through the plug in the shower. I, I, was, I was just, there was, was, I was just, um, you know, it, it was easy. You know, you could, you could spray me with, you know, raid and miss. Um, and so it, he didn't have much, didn't have much regard. So as I was going up the stairs, I decided to sling the legs forward and took him two at a time. And I got up and he just kind of looked at me and said, well, I guess you are a man, aren't you? I stopped and looked at him and I said, Joseph, a man is not measured by the length of his steps, but by their direction. We later became friends, I think. He was hard to read. I, I'm an open book. Simplicity itself. A model for humanity. I hope you're not writing that down. <laughs> I have sinned and I will sin again. I have failed and I will fail again. I have stumbled and veered off course. And I will do so again. But I have lived my life to the best of my ability facing Jesus. And when I die, I will still be facing Jesus. Not because of anything I have done but because of what he has done. There's a wonderful, very esoteric passage in an esoteric book called Ezekiel. First chapter of the book of Ezekiel is to weed out the weak among us. <laughs> because if you can get through the first chapter, you have a shot at getting through the second. It's a chapter by chapter trip. But the appearance of God coming before you see God you see all of these creatures and they are whirling and they are made up of all kinds of things to where Ezekiel has to keep saying like and it was like and it was in the fashion of because there are no human words for what is boiling through the sky toward him. And one of the things he keeps bringing up is it had these faces but everywhere you turned they were already there looking at you. You could not turn and they're not looking at you. You might think it's frightening, but uh, not to me because that, that means something. It means there are times where I might stumble and fail and think I, my eyes aren't quite on Christ yet, but because of his promise, it, they are and he is looking at me. If you ask, he'll be there. You will see him. And by the way, note, there is one classification of people in the life of Jesus that he does not promise rewards to. And that is to those who think they already know it. The religiously arrogant. The religiously smug. Those who spend their lives only reaffirming what they already believe. And not daring to step outside to get their views challenged. In fact, I can remember writing a letter, an open letter, years ago. Whenever there were... Quite a few people on Facebook deciding 
to bring me down right after I'd moved to Tennessee. And the letter was, why are you concerned about this? What am I doing to you? That I have in my group different ideas than yours? How is that a threat to your group? Unless you're afraid that people hearing a different idea may no longer hold to your group. If that is so, what are the validity of your arguments? If you live in fear that any passing by person can grab your sheep. I didn't get any good answers there. I I don't think there are any. The religiously arrogant and smug need not apply here because they've already got Jesus. They've got everything they want. They don't really need Jesus so much. They have their system and that's all they need. Is that harsh? Yes. But consider our arguments about worship. Consider our arguments about doctrine. Almost every person who's listening to that and our few people that are here at the sound stage, they know exactly, they've gone through this. Arguments about doctrine and worship have torn apart families and churches since day one. Where was the Jesus in that argument? I've actually said that in groups. When they were done and hot and they're throwing verses back and forth, I would say, very interesting stuff, guys. Points made, some points landed. Where was Jesus? I don't see the Jesus in this. And I remember when a few older members came, and now I'm older, so I know how this works. But a few older members came to me years ago. This has happened more than once. Saying, we don't like the new songs. We want to, you know, a lot of people are really missing. Anytime anybody comes to you with a lot of people are, and you don't see them, they mean them. Just learn that. I've even said, can I have a list of names? And they won't do that. Well, a lot of people don't like the new songs. And we might leave and take our contributions with us. I would ask them, where was Jesus in that? Where was Jesus in that statement, in that threat? Well, they struggled a bit, so I helped them with a question. I said, Jesus ate, sat, and walked with sinners and publicans. Are you refusing to even sit with people who sing different songs? Why are your standards so much higher than those of Jesus? Are your standards where they need to be? Are you following the steps of our king? Or have you created a separate kingdom? That's harder to get into and stay into. Please know this. Live your life knowing that you don't have to be right about anything but Jesus. Get that right and he'll craft you into being who you need to be. If you can't see what he's doing and you're concerned about that, you're concerned he hasn't answered you. I want you to remember We are sheep and we have a shepherd. We all understand that, right? So we go back and we look. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks the door will be open. Sheep are not good at searching. They they have not quite conquered doorknob technology. They are, and I love sheep. And if you are a sheep, I mean no offense. They are idiots. There's almost no dumber animal on the planet than a sheep. That's why shepherds constantly have to get them. So asking it will be given to you doesn't mean you're going to figure it all out. It means the shepherd's there. If you seek, the shepherd will get you. 
The door will be open. You will be back home. He is making a promise to us, not about us achieving perfection. And then he talks about these gifts being given. I want you to understand something about this. Asking for bread and getting a stone. Asking for fish and getting a snake. I've asked for many things and not gotten them. But think about this. If God gives you what you need, but you don't think he did, we have a problem, don't we? And by the way, this is not hitting you. I think all of us fall into that category. We, we don't know what we're asking for sometimes. We don't know what is best. What do you do when you've asked and God does not seem to have answered? Well, you ask to get over the flu. I get that. He gives you grace and forgiveness. Which would you rather have? Well, to be honest, I'd like to have both. No flu and grace and forgiveness. But you ask him to give you a good weather for an outdoor wedding. He gives you a faithful partner for life. He upgrades what you asked for. And gives you what you need, not what you think you need. You ask him to protect your children. He gives them a home in heaven. You meant that they wouldn't get hurt playing football. He took your little gift and made it something bigger, greater. Let me be very, very clear. God has a history of not giving me what I ask for on my knees, sometimes with tears, and I'm not happy with that, but I understand it. I do. My grandfather was quite ill when we came back to the States, and uh, our little girl, Arui Karakalin, our little Scottish girl that we brought to the wilds of Ohio, she would pray every day for her grandfather, and I can remember I got the call that my grandfather had passed, and that morning I got up and pulled Kara out of her bed and brought her into our room. And I said, you know, you've been praying about your grandfather, your great-grandfather. And she goes, yes. And she said, is he better? And I said, yeah, he is. But he needed to leave here to be better. We all, we, do we get that? We understand that? Those of us who are people of faith? Well, everything else we ask God for, he also has something better in mind. I often bring up that, aren't you grateful? There's even a song, I'm told, a country song. I don't tend to listen to it because we're in Nashville. There are other people who will do that for me. Um, the, thanking God for unanswered prayers. I think we can all do that, can we not? You know, God, I wanted to move there. Oh, it's Civil War time. No thanks. God, you know, let this one be the one that I live with forever. And by the end of the date, you're going, smite them, Lord. Smite them mightily. Well, fact is, God's okay with you having pointed conversations with him about what he didn't give you. It's all right. He's big enough to do this. He's able to handle our pain and the temerity of our challenge. When we challenge his wisdom or his work in the world, Remember, he gave the name to his people, Israel, those who wrestle with God. So, while I get frustrated with God, it's a great comfort to know he is not frustrated with me, nor is he frustrated with you. Even if we do not see or appreciate the gifts he's given us, he's given us. He's showered us with gifts, love, 
and salvation through Jesus, our King. And we're reminded once again that the point of all of this is to treat others as we wish we were treated. The golden rule. Most of us get that at some level. But I sincerely pray that the religious leaders of this world will get the last part of that verse that sums us up so well when he says, just treat people the way you want to be treated and that sums up the whole law and the prophets. We say, it does, kinda, but here's a statement of faith that goes six pages we need you to sign. Here's a standard of behavior. Oh, we heard you went public swimming, mixed swimming. When I was a boy, these were such confusing terms. Because most of the time, they didn't say mixed swimming. They would say mixed bathing. Which, to my mind, conjured something else up. When I found out that they meant swimming, to be honest, it was a bit of a disappointment. But still, I noticed that when I traveled about America, that the preaching on that subject changed in direct correlation to how far you were from a beach. And I began to wonder, well then, what's going on here? Uh, I, I don't understand why treating other people the way you want to treat them is not enough. We have all these other rules. By the way, we lived at Myrtle Beach for a couple of years and one of our preacher friends and his family came down to spend a week with us delightful people. And about halfway through, Carl looked at me and he goes, well, I've learned something. I said, what's that? And he said, I was always told to go into the beach was just a, this whole theater of lust. He says, now that I've seen the people on the beach, the word lust has never entered my mind. And I said, there you go. There you go. We, we're going to need to do some surgery, aren't we? to learn how to treat people well. I've seen people treated horribly in the name of Jesus. That's just not acceptable. We need to do some corrective surgery, especially with this next part. And by the way, if you're trying to time this out, we're not going to go through all of it bit by bit. We have another lesson next week that wraps up Kingdom Manifesto. For most of us, we've been told this enter the narrow gate, wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few will find it. For most of us, we have been told that this is Jesus plainly saying, and listen carefully, that the entire plan of God worked out from the before the beginning of the universe and planned with perfect love, perfect power, perfect wisdom will fizzle out and only save a comparative few. I'd like to push back on that concept. Why? Well, frankly, because I think more highly of God than that. I think our King Jesus is more powerful, more wise, more loving than that. And because I don't think the word life here means eternal life in heaven. I don't think it means that mainly. I don't think it means that entirely. I think it means our lives in the kingdom now. If you're thinking... He does all of this, and all he could pull off was a few salvation. How small is your God? He's saying, however, you will have life here. Here's the thing. Most of us never get to live our life, ever. 
think about it. Not a bit. We're in the now. But we are living in the past and afraid of the future. And we never get to live. Because we're never present. We're not present. We're sitting down there. We're taking bites of amazing food. But people are talking. And we're trying to come up with a... Yeah, an anecdote. We're trying to, oh, now the dessert comes out. Are we going to have the dessert or not? You know, I was going to go. We, we don't take the moment to taste the food. We don't take the moment to feel the sun. We don't take the moment to stand in the rain. We are always not there. And we can be buried after a long life that we never lived. Not a bit of it. Jesus wants to give us life. Relatively few of us are going to tap into the richness of that life in Christ because we allow too many other things to strangle it. We're not focused on him. We are like children at the zoo that get so distracted by all the things we reach out to take our mother or father's hand only to realize that's not them. You have that feeling? You ever done? I do. Reaching up and going... Uh, no, you're not the person. Where am I? We averted our gaze too long. We got turned around. We got lost. They took their eyes off their parent. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. There was an incredibly intelligent polymath. That means they're able to do a whole lot of things exceptionally well. Named Pascal. A mathematician, philosopher, Historian, right? Historian was more amateur. Writer, um, just amazing. Uh, knew many languages. And he and his sister came to faith. And he did. He created something which is called Pascal's uh, Wager. You can look it up. P A S C A L, Pascal's Wager. He said that if he lived his life as a devout Christian, and then died only to find there was no heaven, there was no nothing. He had not lost anything, for he had lived a life of joy, forgiveness, grace, kindness, and love. However, if he lived a life denying the existence of God, and lived in whatever riotous behavior he wanted, and then died only to find out there is a God, he has lost everything. To Pascal, a mathematical genius, the equation was very clear. It made far more sense to bet on the existence of God and the Lordship of Christ. And I have to agree. Now, Paul actually would quibble with me because Paul said, if there is no resurrection, then I am of all people most miserable. You know, I, I get that. Because he was looking about, I poured my life into this. And I would say, you know, Paul, your experience of Christianity is different than most people's. Most people's Christianity didn't get them beaten and left for dead more than once imprisoned, eventually executed, ignored by all the churches you founded. He, he did not have a pleasant life. I get that. And it's kind of like, if I die and that's the end, I'm going to be so bummed. In which case, Paul, I would actually say, no, you won't be anything. But you will be everything because our, our eyes are in the right direction and the shepherd will find us. One day, Driving back from high school before my, my son could drive, my son asked me, why so many teens are in a constant fight with their parents? He says, I just don't get it. 
That's all they talk about, his friends and kids at school, about the parents this, and then they got angry, then they got grounded, then they got this, then they yelled. He said, it just doesn't make any sense to live your life making it harder than it has to be. That's when I told Cammy, I said, I think we did okay with this one. He gets it. The collector of the book of Proverbs uh, would agree. He warned his children to make level paths for your feet. In other words, don't make it harder than it has to be. It doesn't need to be harder. You can instead enjoy the now. I have a grandson who enjoys the now more than I've ever seen anybody else enjoy the now. And I can remember a couple of Thanksgivings ago, there were things on the plate that were unknown to him, because you do that over here. You do things to sweet potatoes that I'm not sure is legal, but I do like it. Uh, you, you do things with cranberry sauce, which I, I thought cranberry sauce was can-shaped. I did, I did not know till I came here that it actually could be in a semi-liquid form. Anyway, he took a bite, and I can't remember what particular dish it was, but it was one made by his sugar, his, his grandmother, my wife. He didn't know that even. When he put it in his mouth, the first thing he did was go, hmm, hmm. And then he chewed it and swallowed it. And I'm thinking, I don't enjoy my food as much as he just enjoyed that one bite. But that's the way he goes through life. It is, oof, he lives in a present more than anybody else that I know. I'd like to grow up to be him. I'm running out of time. I want you to flash back to our king telling us to limit the amount of words we use. Simplify your language. Simplify your life. Talk to a um, dear friend of mine who actually gave me that guitar years ago. Talked to him on the phone this week. It was a great, great visit with a great friend. And we talked about he had just sold uh, a car, a classic car he'd poured a lot of money into. But after selling it, and everybody's going, why are you selling that car? He was able to give more money to a children's home. He was able to do... And I started talking about the guitars that I had recently sold and that how I don't miss them and I'm surprised, but I still feel rich. And, I, and he was going, I know, that's the feeling I get. And we were going back and forth. As I've told my wife, you will either simplify your life or it will be done to you by force of age. Doing it on purpose and simplifying your language, your life, keeping your eyes focused on Jesus, and you're going to... You're going to find what very few Christians do and what very many of his children miss. You will find life. You will not walk out every day thinking, the weather's wrong, because we do that. It's too hot, it's too cold, it's too windy, there's no wind. It's too much rain, hasn't rained. Instead of walking out and seeing, this is your day. What's next? What are you going to do? This is your food. The life he's always wanted for you is already here. It's already now. Perhaps we would hear it better if God were louder. But he doesn't do that, does he? Do you remember Elijah in the cave? He showed him it's not a loud thing. 
presence of God can sometimes be a very quiet thing. But that said, there's a song that I really love, Canons. And it's an older contemporary Christian music song. So I think many of you will know it. And I'm going to need your help doing it, of course. But I like it. It's falling from the clouds, a strange and lovely sound. I hear it in the thunder and the rain. It's ringing in the skies like cannons in the night. The music of the universe plays, singing, You are holy, great and mighty. The moon and the stars declare who you are. I'm so unworthy, but still you love me. Forever my heart will sing of how great you are. <laughs> 